Thank you, Alex. Our sermon text this morning comes from Acts chapter 4. We're continuing in our study in Acts that God is on mission. We're going to see that. We see in Acts chapter 4, looking at verses 23 through 37. If you don't have your copy of God's Word, you'll find it printed for you in the bulletin this morning. Acts chapter 4, verses 23 through 37, what I'm about to read to you is God's Word. When they, that is Peter and John, were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they had heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who is also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. And thus far in God's holy, inerrant, infallible word, let's pray and ask that he might bless the reading, the hearing, the teaching of it this morning. So would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we come before you again thankful for your word that it is true and powerful that it does not go out void but we ask now again send your spirit to unclog ears open eyes soften hearts so that your kingdom would be expanded and so that your people would be changed by your word by your truth we pray in jesus name amen <clears throat> So it was about a year ago, we started talking about having these conversations about should we cancel our services, go online because of this COVID thing. And I remember talking with Lizzie and her asking, well, how long do you think this is going to go on? And I was like, a few weeks tops. And I might have been off by a week or two. Uh, but during this time, it's been amazing to look back and think of all the changes and adaptions that we've, we've gone through and how even in this, our family has actually grown closer together ever before. Our church has adapted and it has been blessed. It has grown. And one thing God has shown us in the past year, if anything, is that he is still at work and that no pandemic can thwart his plans, that he is still on his throne and he is at work molding us, forming us to serve him. 
our theme for the book of Acts is that God is on a mission and that we are an integral part of that mission to proclaim the gospel, to build the kingdom of God. It's so much a part of God's plan for us to participate in this mission that what happens, he gives us his Holy Spirit to strengthen, to help, to encourage us as we seek to live out that mission. That sounds really great and hopeful, but what do you do when things go haywire? or when a pandemic hits, or as we saw last week, when you are arrested and then threatened to be silent by the leaders of the opposing religion and political parties, what do you do then? That's where we pick up in Acts chapter 4, where we see that this, that God's mission, it forms God's people. That God, being at work in us by the power of the Holy Spirit, forms, shapes, molds his people even when a wrench is thrown into our plans. But the disciples of Jesus, they've been arrested twice now. They've been threatened to keep silent. How will they, as God's people, respond? We see that they remember, they ask, they live out. That's where we're headed this morning. How does God's mission form his people? It causes us to remember, ask, and live out. So let's look now at this idea of remembering, which we see in verses 23 through 28. See, as Peter and John, they're released, they head back to their fellow disciples, they tell them what has just happened. We've been threatened by the chief priests and other religions of, of religious leaders of Judaism to not speak or teach at all in what? In the name of Jesus. And the response to these men are, we are not able not to speak about these things. We've seen them, we heard them, we have to say something. The threat still remains as Peter and John are let go. And as they report the situation to their brothers and sisters in Christ, it causes them to at once, in verse 24 we see, lift their voices together in prayer. Now we're going to look at this prayer in two parts. The first part of the prayer right now, and what we see is they remember that power. They remember the works, the plans of God. And we see it right away in the way they open their prayer saying, Sovereign Lord. Now if you look at that Sovereign Lord, it's pretty important. We'll come back to it in a little bit, but it's the Greek word for sovereign in which we get the title despot. Uh, you might not, we might not know what a despot is because we live in America, but if you've been watching Masterpiece at all, a despot is someone who has like absolute authority or control. And what's interesting is when we use the word in the scriptures, we see it used in the scriptures, a despot, a sovereign, a, maybe even a king. It's not seen as a negative. We think of those who rule with absolute power and authority, and we think of tyrants, harsh dictators. But the way we see it used in the scriptures is that of God, and we see it used as one who is in control over all things. And so this group that has just been threatened by those to keep silent, what do they do but turn to the one who is in actual control? They turn to the sovereign. A title that also reflects a type of relationship that they have and they understand they have with God because this is the word, this is a word Paul is going to use and then call him, himself, and his followers what? As servants, slaves even to God. We'll come back to that. Okay? So not only is God the absolute sovereign Lord, not only is he the despot over all, but Peter and John and the other followers are saying, what? 
We are here to serve you, our sovereign king. And while that, and while that might seem foolish, it might be, seem foolish to those who hear them praying this because they're going to think, you're just going to get arrested and killed. It's actually perfectly rational. Because they know him, their sovereign Lord, to be not a powerless dictator, but what? He is the creator of all things. The creator of heaven and earth, it says, and the sea and everything in it. You are the creator who has the power to speak order out of chaos and bring light into darkness. What else do they remember about the God they serve? Look at verses 25 and 26. We're given a bit from Psalm 2. Psalm 2, why do the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and his anointed. That's from the beginning of Psalm 2. Now Psalm 2, even before Jesus has come on the scene, it is seen as a messianic psalm. A psalm that points to, that is about a coming Messiah, a Redeemer. And what does that Redeemer face in Psalm 2? We see at the very beginning, he faces opposition. Nations raging against him, people plotting, kings and rulers setting themselves together against the Messiah, against the anointed one. Just think, as they pray this, what has happened in the recent months for Peter and John and the group as they come together in prayer? Opposition to Jesus. Gentiles and Jewish leaders united, as it says in verse 27, in and conspiring against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed. Both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and people of Israel. And so why are they quoting Psalm 2 in their prayer? God is not only the powerful creator, but he is a, has authority over all. And that even extends to the betrayal of the Messiah. For he revealed through the words of David by the Holy Spirit, this would take place. This is not a surprise to them. They see it now. They remember who God is. He's sovereign. Finally, verse 28, all of this sovereign Lord was done to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. This is a bit shocking for it shows us that the disciples understood and it took them a while to get this, like Peter, that even the rejection of Jesus was part of God's sovereign plan. But as we look at the prayer in the bigger scope of our passage, their prayer is a reflection of who they thought God to be. They remember God and his work and who he is, but they also remember who God claims to be and who they believe God to be. They remember, as John Stott puts it, the God of creation, the God of revelation, the God of history, whose characteristics are summarized by three verbs, that you made the heavens and the earth. You spoke through the mouth of David. You decided to take place. What do they do as the plot thickens? And as they are threatened to keep, to keep quiet about Jesus, they remember. Now, I have a terrible memory. In fact, I've probably told you all this before from the pulpit, but I can't remember telling you this. But I have a terrible memory, and gone are the days where Lizzie can just say, hey, pick up this, this, and this at the store, and I can just listen and get it. No, now when I try to do that, I come home. You know what I do? I turn right around go back to the store and get what I forgot at least once. 
I'm reminded not so much by her, but internally how easy it is to forget things. And if you look at the history of God's people, this same problem plagues them. If you're to read through the Old Testament, you'll notice that the Israelites are always building these little structures, aren't they? What happens when Israel finally crosses the Jordan River and enters into the Promised Land? Waiting 40 years to enter, what do they do? Each tribe takes a stone from the Jordan River and puts it on the bank as a memorial. Why? It says, so the sons of Israel shall remember. We had the Lord's Supper last week. And while we believe there is a spiritual working of the Spirit and our communion with Christ, we also perform that sacrament because Jesus says, do this, why? In remembrance of me. Do you know why we repeat those words every time we do that every month while we partake of the Lord's Supper? Do you know why God's people kept on building these structures? God's people forget. You and I forget. Not just the simple things, but the deep things of God. And often we forget these things because things are going so well for us. That we don't think we need to depend on God at that moment. We have this. We, I've got this for a little bit. But when things start falling apart, isn't it interesting? What do we do? That's when we run to God. That's when we start to remember, oh yeah, he brought through his people. He never abandoned them. He fed them. He guided them. He made the heavens and the earth. He's in control over even this, the anointed one being having opponents set against him. We're called to remember and not forget. And so maybe we need a refresher this morning that God is indeed the sovereign ruler, the creator of all. Nothing is out of his hand. How often do we forget the history of God, not only creating, but delivering his people? He delivered Israel out of Egypt. He delivered Israel into the promised land. He delivers David out of the hands of Saul. He delivers Jonah in his desire to run from God's calling. He delivers Jesus to the cross. Why? So that you and I could be delivered from our sins. Y'all, this prayer starts by stating these historical and theological truths that God is sovereign, he is powerful, and that everything in this world is according to his divine plan, even the difficulties and the oppositions that we face. What about those oppositions? Psalm 2 seems like a gut punch to us, right? It's this messianic psalm, but at the very beginning points to rebellion. It points to opposition to the Messiah, to the appointed one. How can we also pray with our brothers and sisters in Acts 4 and in Acts 2 as we face opposition to the gospel? As we might see our supposed friends or allies step back. How can we join in this prayer Maybe it's by reading Psalm 2 and realizing that while the opening points to the opposition the Messiah faces, have you ever read the rest of Psalm 2? What is the rest of the, what does the rest of Psalm 2 state? This opposition is ultimately futile. Because how does Psalm 2 end? Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in your way for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. So as you think of the opposition we face, real opposition, 
the opposition we might, we might face when we gently and lovingly but truthfully share the gospel and who our God is. What are we to do when things, what are we to do when that brings opposition? We pray for the Lord God to give us strength by the Spirit to keep proclaiming and living his truth, knowing this, that Psalm 2 and the promises of Jesus are real and are true, that one day we will be in opposition no more, but in glory. We want others to be in glory with us. So the question is, is that what you are believing and remembering when you speak about the gospel and it falls on deaf or even opposing ears that you can remember? As you do that, this might sound crazy. My prayer for our church is that our people would have even more of those difficult conversations. To talk with people who are opposed. Why? Because it points to this, that you are talking with unbelievers about God. We can ask ourselves this this morning. Do I know and speak to any unbelievers about the Lord, about my faith in God? What were Peter and John doing? They were doing things in the name of Jesus. What are we called to do? To live our lives in the name of Jesus. To make disciples in the name of Jesus. But here's the problem with that. You can't make a disciple from someone who is already a disciple. And so if that is you this morning, someone who doesn't have any unbelieving friends, let me just challenge you to seek out unbelievers and love them and to get to know them in your neighborhood or in your work or in your gym and love those people. And one day you will have the privilege of sharing your faith and you can pray for God to give you strength to fight the fears and nerves you will face and ask to help you remember that he is sovereign. He has been faithful for countless generations before you in their desire work, desire to seek the lost. And he calls you to grow the kingdom of God and he's not going to leave you nor forsake you. Remember. You might say, I don't even know where to begin and how to approach that. Well, that brings us to the second part of this prayer, where we see that after the disciples start their prayer by remembering and sharing of the work of God throughout history, they then ask the Lord for help. So let's look there at, at the ask in verses 29 through 31. As we see, there are three requests, three petitions for God's people from God's people. The first one we see in verse 29 is that the Lord might look upon their threats. Notice again, it's not asking for the Lord to take away these threats or for the threats to be crushed, but that he would simply look upon them. Would you consider us and take note of the injustices that we are facing? Would you take note of the threats that the Sanhedrin, these Jewish rulers, have made on us and that it could cost us our very lives? It could cost us everything. Because, we see, these believers are not going to stop proclaiming the good news in the name of Jesus. No, what else do they ask for? Look upon our threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. Two things here. First, is that in the face of opposition, what do they ask for? Boldness to speak the word of God faithfully. How bizarre. For the Greek and Roman culture they're a part of and for ours as well. When, so, when someone threatens us and we know we're in the right, 
When someone tries to take us down legally and arrest us, and we know we've committed no wrong, we're like, bring it on. Let that sweet hammer of justice fall down, baby. That's not what they do. We get bogged down with trying to seek our own justice. They pray for boldness to keep speaking the word of God. And that he would see them. And this gets back to that first section, but it's so key to think about and ask, what are we praying for? That God give you boldness to keep professing and living out your faith in Jesus in a land that is opposed to the gospel. Because that's our reality and growing more so every day. They pray for boldness to continue God's mission. But the second thing I want you to see is that they can pray for boldness and leave justice and judgment up to God. Why? Who is he again to them? The despot. The sovereign. And what are they? Servants. Remember? Literally slaves. How does Paul call, what does he, how does he describe himself throughout a lot of his letters? A slave to Christ, a bondservant to Christ. In Romans 6.18, Paul says that we, having been set free from sin, are what? We have become slaves of righteousness. Y'all, we are slaves. We are servants of who? The despot, the sovereign, the sovereign Lord over heaven and earth. The master seeks justice for what has been done to his servants. That's the way it works. That's what sovereigns do. It's up to him, not the slaves. That's what we are. And yet, how often do we act like we are the sovereigns, we are the rulers, and that we have to extract our pound of flesh in justice, when the reality of the Christian life is that the sovereign has actually paid our pound of flesh that we owned with his life. Why? So that we, his servants, don't have to worry about justice being done, because if it was justice was going to be done, it'd be done to us. But he's paid for it. And so instead, we can focus on speaking with boldness the word of God. Third request they make in verse 30. They ask, may we speak with boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. Again, they don't call for the sovereign Lord to stretch out your hand and rain down fire. But instead... Bring about healing. Bring about more acts of mercy. Remember, what got them in trouble besides preaching in the name of Jesus? What drew the attention at the temple? It was healing of a man who had been lame for 40 years. There's a sense of confidence that God will continue to work in their ministry. And so he blesses them in their boldness to preach the word and grow the kingdom of God. Do you see that message behind these petitions? God, show your compassion to the people as the community proclaims your word in the face of opposition. And God, we see, responds. Look at verse 31. How does he respond? After they have prayed, the place in which they were gathered shakes. You see, in the Old Testament, often when God responds, the earth quakes. And they're filled with the Holy Spirit. And we know that because they continue to speak the word of God with boldness. What a response. That God shakes the ground. He enables them to continue their work by the Spirit. 
which brings about the very thing they asked, a sense of boldness. Their prayer to continue the mission has been met with the spirit-filled supply of God's mercy and grace. And so as we consider the asking of that prayer, let's consider what it means for us in terms of application specifically. What does this look like for the church, for us, for our church, for Palmetto Hills? Well, the first thing we see is that their ministry is dependent upon God. Just look at this. They ask for God to see them, to remember them, for him to bring justice as their sovereign, as their Lord and master. They depend on that. They ask for boldness. They ask for courage to speak truth. And they ask for God to then show the world that he is the one behind the preaching of the word with the healing and the signs and the wonders. How do they face opposition? Not just in the preaching of the word, but by pointing to what God is doing, that he is at work in his kingdom. And the very same thing is true for us. And it makes us wonder, what are we asking for? Maybe we're asking for the wrong things. Maybe we aren't asking enough. You see, the boldness of the disciples is not just an asking for strength and courage to preach the word, but it is bold to ask for the Lord to keep healing and to keep doing these signs and wonders that they're experiencing. How convicting to consider that, and personally, I neglect to pray, Lord, show yourself to my friends today. Who don't know you, that they that you may overwhelm their soul. I don't ask, Lord, as I'm about to meet with this person, a friend of mine for coffee who doesn't know you, would you even right now convert them? Their mind might be transformed, their heart replaced from stone to flesh. Lord, would you show your power in my conversation today with my coworker? Would your power miraculously be present as I talk to my neighbor? We ask for those things. Another point of application is that this gives us a diagnostic tool to reflect on. And a diagnostic tool, it's what you use, you know, when your check engine light comes on and you plug it into your car's computer and it, it pops out a message that tells you what's wrong and it's always the gas cap. Remember that. But it diagnoses the problem so you can fix it. This prayer gives us This, as a tool, it lets us look at it and reflect and ask this question, what does a healthy church community look like? A reliance on God. A church and a community resting in his justice and his provision. A willingness to face opposition in order to continue preaching the word of God. A desire to preach Jesus. A church that prays and prays that God would show himself in our lives as we live for him. So we think about that. How would you and I, how would our church be diagnosed this morning? Let's close by looking at the rest of this chapter, verses 32 through 37, where we see that the life of the community and can't help but consider how similar this is just the two chapters prior. If you look at chapter 2, verse 44, they're very, very similar. What does this community of believers look like? Ask it another way, what does such a people who remember the promises of God and depend on him in the face of opposition, what does such a place 
look like living out their faith. First, look at verse 32. We see there's a lot of people there. A multitude, the full number is the Greek word for multitude. And it indicates this. There's a lot of people there. It's not just a handful of people. This is a large group of people who believed. And they were what? Of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. This is my, I'm so glad Josh gave me this passage to, to preach because the challenge we, I was a joke, this challenge we face when we read this is that we have these political spectacles we put on when we read certain passages of the Bible. And so when we read this text, do you know what comes to a lot of our minds as we think about it politically? Socialism. And so whatever the text says, all we see is socialism. And either promote that or you attack that based on your persuasion. The challenge, though, I urge you, is to read this text in light of the context of the passage. So what does the community look like? They are of one heart and one soul. This is a Proverbs-like saying that, based on other writings of this time, it, it, it indicates this, a real, true, deep friendship. One heart and one soul, a group that is committed to one another. Just note how they all pray. Peter and John come back and they share this grief. What do they do? They pray as one voice. This is a group that reflects the idea that we are to weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. And this is not an idea that's foreign to our church. Y'all, I can't tell you the number of times where we've had someone in our church have a baby or be in the hospital or faced with a scary medical situation. And what happens? The community reaches out to them and they encourage them and they pray for them. They even feed them. Why? Because in a community sense, when they suffer, we suffer. It shows that we have this idea of being one heart and one soul. This is not some random idea we see just here in Acts. This is this is real life for us. Let's look at the rest of the verse. Where no one said that any of the things belonged to him and, and was his own, but they had everything in common. Now the word that's important there to underline or highlight is that word common. It's a Greek adjective. And this Greek adjective comes from a series of similar terms that has been that has a meaning of it, of being with and sharing with others. In fact, the Greek word koinonia, which is very popular, is translated as this English word fellowship. Community, fellowship, it's all the same word. That's the word we see here in common. So is the idea of sharing and partnering with someone. Why would Luke write that they had everything in common and no one said that things belonged to them? They just give up their property rights? No. Think of it like this. Uh, my final years of college, I spent at A&M, and I lived with the same guy, group of guys uh, both those years, and we, they're the guys I grew up with. I literally grew up with them in elementary school in the little town of Leander, and we made it out of the small town of Leander, and we made it to the slightly larger, slightly bigger, smaller town, a college station. And, and, and we had this, there's this phrase you might have heard, man, he just give you the shirt off his back. You ever heard that? That was what I felt with that group of guys. Even today, I feel that. Why can I say that out of them? Because we were so close. We had such a deep friendship. I knew that if I was ever in need, the others wouldn't think twice to come and help me out. Some great stories of us doing that. 
What Luke is describing here is a community of believers who are so close that they give the shirts off their back to make sure everyone is cared for, even at a cost. Just look at verse 34. Some of them have extra parcels of land they own. Some have extra houses and they sell their houses and they bring them and they, the proceeds and they lay it at the apostles' feet to be used when there's a need. And as they do this, Again, they're strengthened to proclaim the gospel and their testimony of how God has brought them out and put them in, not only of a new, with new hearts, but with a new community. So as you think about that, let's just make one final application, and that is we are so often focused on protecting and acquiring instead of giving. When we see that that's antithetical, to the idea of gospel community. And we do this because we want to make sure our secure our future. We want to have comforts of life available to us later on. And the Bible does tell us to plan for later on in life. But we tend to protect those things at any cost. It's convicting when someone like John Calvin, 500 years prior to us, gets at this point and says, hey, this stuff is still real, even for the, it's real for even for him. He writes this. In those days, the believers gave abundantly of what was their own. We, that is 500 years ago, we in our day are content not just jealously to retain what we possess, but callously to rob others. They sold their own possessions in those days. In our day, it is the lust to purchase that reigns supreme. Over 500 years ago, and it holds true today. So how does the Bible in this passage call us to loosen our grip on that idolatry of possessions or money? Two very practical ways that are biblical and good for us. And they're so simple, but yet so difficult. First is the tithe. Do you ever wonder why giving of tithes and offerings is part of our worship service? It's not just like this convenient transition from singing to sermon that we just stick in there. It is, no, it, it actually is an act of worship. And that act of worship says, Lord, you provided for me my daily bread and more. I have abundance. It is all from you. And so I give back to you out of recognition of your mercy and grace to me. I give because it shows me that I must depend on you for my everything. I offer these things to you because your church knows how to best use it for those in need. So I lay it at the apostles' feet. I give so that it might not become a God of my life, but that you remain the God of my life. Y'all, we are called to give of what God has provided to us for so many reasons. We're called to tithe so that it doesn't become an idol. And so that the community might be benefited by the kingdom of God. First thing. Second thing, another very practical thing to help us loosen our grip is to seek to be part of the community of believers. To be, as the Greek word emphasizes, to be connected to one another. You know why it's really effective? It's hard to just watch someone you are deeply connected and love suffer and stand idly by and just say, I really wish I could help you there. Sorry about that. No, 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 that, that's not how it works. When you're deeply connected to someone and you see they're in need, they say, let me, get, let me give you something, let me give you my time, let me give you help and my energy, let me love on you. 
And soon what happens, you start thinking of yourself less and the kingdom more. You see how that helps promote one heart and one soul. You see, the community and fellowship, it is so crucial, especially in light of living in a world where there is opposition to the gospel. And the question then is, where will you turn when you are struggling to remember the promises? Where are you to turn when you struggle to remember the works and the mighty acts of God? Yes, you turn to God, but who else? To your brothers and sisters who can support you and point you again and again as you forget and doubt and forget again. Who will you share your struggles of needing boldness and help to talk to your unbelieving friends and loved ones and co-workers and even strangers about Jesus to? Who will you turn to? Not just God, but your brothers and sisters who likewise struggle and need that support too. You see, that God's mission for us, it joins us together, but it also forms us. It forms us to depend on him and one another. Why? Because one day in glory, it's not just going to be you and God, but all of us. And even some of those we were able to boldly speak with about the gospel and glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for your word that it is true and powerful and that it does convict our hearts to see our, our brothers and sisters coming together with one voice to ask for boldness, to proclaim who you are. Oh Lord, we confess that so often we forget. And when we don't forget, we don't ask. Or we ask for too little when you are willing to give your children an abundance. Oh, Lord, convict our hearts to ask more and more boldly of your mercy and grace as we interact with people. Would you give us the confidence to remember who you are and what you have done and what you promised you will do for your people? And, oh, Lord, would you give us hearts to come together in one heart and one soul, knowing that because of our union with Christ and our relationship as a body of believers in this local church, we would give the shirt off our back. For those in mercy and need, for when they hurt, we hurt, and when they rejoice, we rejoice. Oh Lord, be with us, grant us this mercy, grant us this grace, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.